Anyway, so we've been looking at the book of Philippians, we've been uh, looking at the pleasure Paul takes in relating to uh, this church and then just encouraging them in the place they're at. And uh, we continue in our Tuesdays to work through the book in our discipleship group. Um, however, I wondered what was next for us. And then I remembered that last year before the pandemic, we were going through 1 Peter and I saw it wouldn't take much to polish it off and um, it, there was a, a couple of things that I still think were important for us today. And, and it's interesting, this sermon that I've written, I actually wrote in February uh, last year. And then I revisited it this Friday. And uh, it's interesting some of the points that come forth uh, in uh, wake of the fact that we've been uh, sort of in lockdown, in and out of isolation for a year now. And uh, there are lots of things in here that uh, perhaps seem more relevant uh, than ever. So, uh, for me, one of the strangest things uh, about the New Testament is that Jesus has these carefully taught disciples. You know these ones that he selected, these 12 uh, that are uh, uh, famous um, and uh, that he constantly sort of rebukes and then takes up to mountaintops for supernatural experiences and then causes them, calls them the devil and casts them out. And uh, so we have these highs and lows of these apostles, but come the book of Acts, where are they? What happens to them? And then the epistles, all these different letters written from church leaders to churches, uh, across the Mediterranean, where are the letters from these 12 apostles? It's all very good having Paul there, but didn't we want someone that sat at Jesus' feet for over three years of ministry? How come those men seem to make so little impact on church history? Scripture says very little about them after... Um, uh, sort of after, sort of Jesus moves away, goes to the right hand of the Father. We hear a little bit about Peter and a little bit about John. For the rest, what happens? Uh, this is not gospel truth. The thing I'm going to read to you is not something uh, that you can take to the bank, but these are accounts passed down through the ages of what possibly happened to those first disciples. Uh, there was an English historian called John Fox and he wrote this uh, book of martyrs um, and it's sort of very famous uh, sort of during the uh, sort of Reformation and, it, and just uh, I'm going to try and skip over uh, the bits that perhaps are uh, less impactful for a sermon. So it says, after the martyrdom of Stephen, suffered next James, the holy apostle of Christ and brother of John. When this James, say Clement, was brought to the tribunal seat, he that brought him and was the cause of his trouble, seeing him to be condemned and that he should suffer death, was in such short moved in heart and conscience that as he went to the execution, he confessed himself also to be a Christian. This guy that brings uh, James to be uh, executed for being a Christian suddenly becomes a Christian too. What a great story 
uh, uh, to pass through uh, uh, history. And so they were led forth together um, and he asked James to forgive him. And James had a little pause and then said, peace, we, uh, peace be to thee, brother. And he kissed him and then both were beheaded. What a fascinating end to a church leader's life. It's not a story you hear much about in church leaders today. Um, so that was so good. So it says, Thomas, he preached. Thomas the doubter, you know, he just sort of wanted to sort of touch Jesus' wounds. Thomas preached to the Parthians, Medes and Persians. And all sorts of other people that I'm not going to pronounce this morning. Um, he suffered in Kalamina, a city of India. And then he was slain with a dart. Simon, who was brother to Jude, um, and da 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 da, was crucified in the city of Egypt in the time of the Emperor Trajan. Simon, the apostle, uh, preached in Mauritania, in the country of Africa, and in Britain. And he was likewise crucified. It seems the lifespan of these apostles wasn't very long. Mark, the evangelist and first bishop of Alexandria, preached in Egypt. And then he was drawn with ropes into the fire and was burnt and buried in a, a place called Berculus. Bartholomew is said to have preached to the Indians and to have translated the Gospel of St Matthew into their tongue. Um, and so he went around and then he was beaten with staves, then crucified uh, and was then beheaded. So, you know, they really wanted these guys uh, dead. Um, and there were some uh, fascinating other stories that, that we could go on. And we find all these apostles, according to a, a, a sort of a less rigorous church history, um, they all were killed. They all paid the ultimate price for following Jesus. This man who they sat at the feet of for three years, changed their lives so completely that they uh, suffered martyrdom for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. Why write a book about martyrs? It was pretty popular in the sort of time of the Reformation, but I'm not sure I've heard much about martyrdom being a great calling in church life. I wonder when the last time you were enthused by a talk about dying for your faith. Hey, lots of talk about mental wellness, lots of talk about managing, managing finances, or sexual morality, or politics, or other great and lofty things that we can get our teeth into. But martyrdom, it seems a little bit detached. Why did Lord Fox focus on these failures? Why did he attach such importance to the deaths of these guys? If you've got a Bible, uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. This is uh, where we got to uh, last time. Awesome. I've got no idea what's happened to the slides at all. That is the first time that's ever happened. Um, and... Uh, Tim, you could have a look at it. I don't know whether uh, it's rescuable. It might be beyond hope. Who knows? I might even no longer be online. So uh, if you've... Uh, hey, fantastic. Thanks, Tim. So, 1 Peter, chapter 4, uh, verse 12. 
So this is Peter talking to these various churches. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that come, has come on you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. I wonder what he had in mind. Uh, I've got a feeling they had particular people in mind. You should not suffer as a meddler in other people's affairs. Um, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise the God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. There's some difficult verses here. Uh, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Particularly uncomfortable verses. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So, we have Peter, um, and he didn't survive uh, long enough to have a, uh, um, an old age life, but he, he did leave a legacy, unlike some of the other guys, a written legacy, and he leaves this letter to these churches uh, in Turkey. Um, and it's inevitable that Peter's experiences come in in how he relates to these guys. According to this man, who spent a lot of time with Jesus, you know, he was part of that inner group um, in those 12, um, he said that these times of trouble are to be embraced as part of the Christian experience. It's inevitable. It's a bit like if you're a West Ham fan, you're going to experience all sorts of losses, and if you love Jesus, you're going to experience loss too. Try to pick a football team that I couldn't think of many supporters uh, in the congregation of um, So it's not too partisan. Um, and so he said, if you're a Christian, you're going to experience these times of trouble. You should expect it. It should not be a surprise. You should not throw your hands up in wonder and go, oh, I never saw this coming. And to help them process being troubled uh, as Christians, he brings these insights which I think have more pertinence having been a year in the pandemic. Uh, uh, so perhaps that's why the sermon was delayed, to, to give it a little bit more flavour, a little bit uh, uh, more grit, a little bit more teeth. So Peter tries to reframe how we think of suffering um, uh, as he goes into this bit. And he says, your hard times are like fiery ordeals. Now. When the 21st century person hears that, we think of uh, calamity and disaster and accident. Think of uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, stuff going wildly wrong and then has been consumed uh, uh, by the combustible elements around us. You know, it all goes uh, uh, terribly wrong and everything falls by ears. But Peter's intention is not to say that. 
is not trying to say this fiery ordeal uh, where everything blows up. He's reminding them of the process of, of refining. It is a repeated image in scripture of the refining process for silver and gold. Because silver and gold, um, unless you're in like the Californian gold rush, uh, they occur in the ground with other metals. They're not pure often in and of themselves and they're, they're bound to other stuff and they're, when they're like that, they're difficult to work with and they're not very precious. They have a diluted value and a diluted use. And for thousands of years, humanity has known that to get the true value of silver and gold, what you have to do is refine them with fire, with this fiery ordeal. And you heat them uh, 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 extremely hot and the impurities rise to the surface. And again and again, Scripture uses this and says it is a spiritual truth that you will find. There will be a pressure on the believer. And what will happen is the immorality and unrighteousness rises to the surface so it can be dealt with. I wonder how your pandemic has gone. I wonder what catastrophes and griefs and hardships you've been through. And I wonder how you've dealt with them. Because Peter says, when you go through trouble, the impurities rise to the surface. If things don't go, way, go your way and you resort to shouting quickly, that is what Paul's, Peter's talking about. If you resort to substance abuse or um, uh, sort of binge-watching uh, friends or, uh, you know, you sort of overeat and overindulge or uh, you just uh, lock yourself in a room and go into sort of uh, self-interment, these are unhealthy mechanisms by which you are coping with pressure. And they have risen to the surface under heat. And God goes, now you can see how you deal with things. And now you can see that you need dealing with them. I need to purify you of these unhealthy behaviours that go under the surface in normal life, but rise to the surface when the heat is turned um, let me tell you, I am very uncomfortable as I preach this sermon because I know there's all sorts of behaviours that have risen to the surface when the pressure has been put on over this last year that have not been healthy, that have not delighted the Lord and caused the angels to sing Hosanna in the heavens. And if it's true for me, then maybe it's true for you too. And it's a fascinating insight that Pete gives us. He says, this fiery deal shows you how you cope with stuff. Shows you where your hope is. Shows you what you think is important. And he says, it should be seen as a helpful mechanism where ungodliness can be expelled, where it can be skimmed off the top. And so, it's still true today. 
The pandemic is an opportunity for God to skim off that unrighteousness, that ungodliness, that unhealthy behaviour. All those little things that we don't think really matter in normal life and then suddenly become uh, very central to our lifestyle. And it is more true when we are go through hardship because of our faith. When we are unfairly dealt with do we get angry and het up? Do we get resentful? Do we rant and rage at our enemies? Or do we, like James, put our arm around our persecutor and, and say, you know, I forgive you? When hard times come, we're to examine our bad reactions and allow God to skim them off. Um, in some ways, I could read this next bit and leave it there, it is uh, full of. Um, so, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, one of my favorite writers, um, he lost his wife to cancer, and uh, he writes very frankly in a book called um, A Grief Observed, and I'm just gonna read three short excerpts for it. He doesn't hold any of his punches. Tonight, all the hells of young grief have opened again. The mad words, the bitter resentment, the fluttering in the stomach, the nightmare unreality, the wallowed in tears. If you have ever lost someone near and dear to you, you might recognise these. For in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always reoccurs, round and round. Everything repeats. Am I going in circles, or do I hope I am on a spiral? And if I am on a spiral, am I going up or am I going down? And he says this. It was too perfect to last, so I am tempted to say, of our marriage. But it can be meant in two ways. It may be grimly pessimistic, as if God no sooner saw two of his creatures happy than he stopped it and said, no, that here. As if he were like the hostess at the sherry party who separates two guests the moment they show signs of having got into a real conversation. But it could also mean this had reached its proper perfection. This had become what it had in it to be. Therefore, of course, it would not be prolonged. It's as if God said, good, you have mastered that exercise and I'm really pleased with you and now you're ready to go on with the next. When you have learned to do quadratics and enjoy doing them, you will not be set them any longer. The teacher moves you on. Think of this in terms of trials and hardships and moments that you struggle with. Sometimes, Lord, one is tempted to say that if you wanted us to behave like the lilies of the field, you might have given us an organisation more like theirs. But that, I suppose, is just your grand experiment. Oh no, not an experiment, for you have no need to find things out. Rather, your grand enterprise, to make an organism which is also a spirit, to make that terrible oxymoron a spiritual animal, to take a poor, a poor primate, a beast with nerve endings all over it, a creature with a stomach that wants to be filled, a breeding animal that wants its mate, and say, now get on with it and become a god. 
C.S. Lewis was very familiar with grief and sadness for testing times, times that called his faith either to stand up and be counted or retreat and crumble into dust. And his book, A Grief Observed, is uh, an incredible piece of writing. The second theological insight Peter has for us comes in verse 13. We're reminded that Jesus suffered. It's not a big revelation. Jesus suffered. Yes, we know. That's how we become uh, into uh, God's good books. Uh, and his execution was obviously not a happy, clappy moment. Listening to some preachers and ministries, you would be forgiven thinking that when we become Christians, God is suddenly on our side and that all is going to be well and that you can look forward to a future of health, wealth and success. That life is going to be just an upward trend of goodness and happiness. And if the, that isn't your experience, then you're just not trying hard enough, you're not giving hard enough and you're not praising the Lord hard enough. They rightly point to the resurrected Jesus and say, he's your man. But they wrongly conclude, now is the time of our fullness of our inheritance. Now is the time where we get to enjoy the fullness of everything Jesus do, uh, has done for us. The reality is that while we still live on this earth, we are enduring the corruption of the fall. It's still going on. There is an end in sight, but it is not here yet. And our experience, I'm afraid, is more likely to be like that of the dusty, thirsty, betrayed Jesus than some sort of millionaire televangelist. When we suffer because of our faith, Peter says, no, that's okay. You're connected with Jesus. That's what it's going to look like. You take on the likeness of your Saviour. Your life is going to look like his. When you suffer and endure hardship, don't be surprised because that's who you're following. When we first become Christians, we're happy to be close to Jesus. You know, it's so important to us. His death counts for us and we just can't stop singing and praising. When we get baptised, we're happy to be connected with him because we can look forward to the resurrection. I'm afraid, friends, that that initial conversion and that baptism is how the life carries on. And we're still connected to Jesus. And that connection to Jesus says that just like him, we get to suffer too. It's not an optional extra. It's not a failure of your belief. It's not a somehow a pessimistic religion that you need to abandon in favour of something more optimistic. We're with him for better and for worse. And there's going to be both times. When we endure hardship, particularly because of our faith, Peter says, instead of protesting and go, Lord, I want to escape this misery, to remember that that's what the Messiah went through. 
and that there is a sense in which we are more connected in those times. There are countless moments where Christians have treasured this connection so much that they have died for Jesus. As I get older and more settled in the world, I feel sometimes that I am less likely to die for Jesus. I have become comfortable in all sorts of ways. Sort of children and finance and job, you know, I have found my place and I sit back in my life with some sort of comfy sofa. And the idea of dying for Jesus seems a lot less attractive than it was when I was a teenager or in my 20s. But the challenge continues. One of the guys that really challenges my faith is this guy called Ignatius. Um, and it looks like Ignatius became a Christian as a kid. Um, and it looks like he was uh, actually taught by the Apostle John. So he's proper in there at the early stages of Christianity. Um, and there are reports that the very, our very own Apostle Peter, who wrote this letter, uh, he asked this guy Ignatius to take over the church at Antioch. Um, and uh, I want you to listen to this. Um, you're going to struggle to say the things that he said. But I uh, need to hear this as much as you do to kind of recalibrate sometimes the expectations of our faith. Because there are all sorts of things that we think we're working towards and then Ignatius kind of pulls the rug from under us. All the way from Syria to Rome, I am fighting with wild animals on land and sea, by night and by day, fettered to ten leopards, a squad of soldiers whom kindness makes even worse. You can imagine soldiers who you're kind to and they just laugh and make your life even more of a misery. Um, their disgraceful conduct makes me still more a disciple, but that does not justify me. May it be for my good that the wild animals are ready for me. I pray that I may find them prompt. So he's looking forward to like a, a death in the ring where they love to put Christians in with sort of lions and tigers and let these animals rip the Christians apart. I pray that I might find them prompt. I shall coax them to devour me promptly, unlike some who have been afraid to touch. If they are unwilling and refuse, I will compel them to do it. Pardon me, I know what is best for me, and now I am beginning to be a disciple. The end of his life he's still saying I'm beginning to be a disciple. May nothing seen or unseen grudge my attaining to Jesus. Let fire and cross, encounters with wild animals, tearing apart of bones, hacking of limbs, crushing of the whole body. A fascinating uh, paragraph of a Christian looking forward to being a disciple. It's not one I've encountered in many of the ministries that I've read about uh, and stuff, but this is Ignatius uh, uh, in the sort of the first generation of Christians. Crushing of the whole body, tortures of the devil may come upon me, if only may I may attain to Jesus. And there's this wonderful realisation. He doesn't just get justified. He isn't made pure. Jesus doesn't think he's better because of it. 
but it is an illustration of his fidelity to his saviour. It is an illustration of, I'm with Jesus, guys. Your wealth, health, your power, your pleasure, these things are not my Lord and saviour. Jesus is. And if that means I have to face lions and tigers, then I will beg them to eat me for his sake. Our faith teaches us, whether you like it or not, whether you embrace that teaching or not, that suffering is in inevitable for those that love Jesus. Being kind, now this shouldn't become as a surprise to anyone, being kind, generous, pure and honest still invites ridicule. I see it even now. You can be kind and honest and pure and people will take advantage of you, people will turn their backs on you, people won't like you demonstrating things that they know they wish they could be like. And you get exploited and you invite rage. The discipline we acquire in this pain to keep with Jesus regardless is proof who our Saviour is. If in the hard times you are still connected to Jesus and he is still your Saviour, you prove your allegiance. You prove who your Saviour is. You don't make it more true, but you do show it. Our life goal and again, I'm preaching as much to myself as to you lot. Our life goal is not comfort. It's not ease. It's not an anaesthetic of life where we don't really feel pain. It's for living for someone that died for us. Last point I have is uh, called Pain Now or Later, Sir. It's almost should have been the sermon title, and I might change that. Uh, Peter's last approach at sort of helping us think about pain and grief and suffering is possibly the hardest to say. So you kind of have to kind of get over yourselves in some, of the, in some way. Verse 17 of that portion that I read out, Peter says, God's judgment is coming. It's coming. It's universal. Doesn't matter who you are, it is coming. He is holy and you are not. And no one will escape his judgment. However, this perfect justice of God is better dealt with in this life rather than the next. It is better to endure his wrath now than in eternity. It is better to endure God's displeasure when we can do something about it than in eternity when uh, we can't. Now this messes a little bit with some of the other ideas of Christianity. But Peter makes it makes the point very clearly. It is better to face God's displeasure when you can change than uh, face his displeasure in eternity when you can't. If it is hard for a Christian to be saved, 
then there's no hope for someone that doesn't know Jesus. Let me uh, read out. So this is a paragraph that Peter relies on in this bit. And it's in the uh, last book of the Old Testament. It's called uh, Malachi. Um, and it says this in uh, chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? So when we call evil good, when we say good is evil, it's a, maybe like saying riches and prosperity are the best good and danger and risk you need to take out of your life. It's kind of reversal of God's kingdom. And Malachi denounces that. So, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are speaking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be, and I hope you uh, recognise this metaphor, he will be like a refiner's fire. So we talked about that earlier, the silver and gold. He will be, uh, perhaps, the more domestic amongst us. He will be like the launderer's soap. I don't know which metaphor you uh, find more appealing, uh, uh, but there are the two. Jesus is either going to be like the refining fire or dads. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. When the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. And so I will come and put you on trial. This is what Peter's drawing from. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages in these times of uh, um, fairness in finance, in times of proper wages and uh, minimum wage and things like that. It's interesting that that is a feature of righteousness, to pay people what you owe them rather than get away with what you can who oppresses the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners, the immigrants, among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord God Almighty. We have this terrifying image of God judging humanity in Malachi. And uh, the godly survive just and are helped and are made better by the judgment. You know, the Levites rise to the occasion as God helps them along. But the godless have not nowhere to go. They're kind of burnt up. They are only the stuff that you skim off the top. They are only impurities. And they've no lag to stand on. The times of suffering as a Christian are opportunities for refinement. They are proof of who uh, we are 
allied with. And thirdly, Peter tells us, they are a reminder that God is just, he is pure, he is holy, he is righteous, and he expects that from those who follow him. And when bad times come, it is a point of God saying, my justice is going to come. Get right with me now. Pull your socks up. Friends, whatever we face in this life, and all of us will have different experiences, it is better to deal with the pain now rather than eternity. It is better for God to discipline us now than forever. Please bear your heads. Heavenly Father, in this time of uh, pandemic, can be hard to hear Peter's words. They are not necessarily the buoyant, frothy words of encouragement that we like to take on board. But Lord God, we nonetheless realise that you have preserved this truth because we need to hear it. Lord God, I pray that when the scum and impurity in our life rises to the surface in hard times, that we would let you get rid of it. God, we don't want to be impure. We don't want to be hard to work with. Lord God, refine us, even though we know that can be painful. Lord God, we choose you all the time. Lord God, help us to do that, especially when it's hard, because we know if you died for us, there's nothing we can't do uh, to return that blessing. And Lord God, as we face hardship, as it echoes perhaps a little of the justice that you will exercise at the end of time, Lord God, I pray that we may chase righteousness a little harder, that we would be reminded of the fate of those that don't love you a little more acutely in our hearts. Lord God, I pray that we would have a theology of suffering that sees our faith grounded and firmly secure and in a place that no pandemic or any other uh, pestilence can uh, dislodge. God, I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.